Hi, and welcome to the Desert Heights Church Weekly Message, where we study scripture together verse by verse. Let's jump in now for this week's message. God is establishing a covenant with David that is eternal and is contingent upon God's eternal nature to maintain. Are you okay? This is not one of those if-then conditional statements where God says, David, if you're a perfect man, then I will sustain your kingdom. God says, David, I chose you. I'm going to build you a house and it will be eternal. David says, what do I do? Just sit there. God tells David, your house and your kingdom, in verse 16, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever. God says this, this knowing full well that David will sin. Right? And after, <clears throat> after David, there will be good kings, but there's also going to be some bad kings over Israel and Judah. But even through the bad kings, God is going to sustain his kingdom. God will keep them, even not if they fail, but when they fail. God will keep David's house and David's kingdom for all time. His throne will be secure forever because this is about God's will. This is about God's story, about God being Adonai Yahweh, about him being the divine savior. So, <clears throat> How can God promise David's kingdom will be eternal? Think for just a second. Because we know the previous king, Saul, he was anointed as king over Israel, and that was not eternal. That stopped. How can God promise David's kingdom will be eternal? Well, there will be one king who is a descendant of David who will infuse this kingdom with eternal blood. Are you following the hand motions? <clears throat> A descendant of David will come down from heaven and be on the cross. And it's going to be forever. And he invites us. We should have an altar service right now. <clears throat> you understand what's happening? This is going somewhere. Woo, and we get to be a part of it. When God makes a covenant with a man or whenever he makes a covenant with humanity, it is a covenant that necessarily will require mercy and grace because it requires mercy and grace because it is a covenant with sin-filled mankind. If we could make ourselves perfect, then God's covenant doesn't need to require mercy and grace. We would just come to him on our own merit. Israel has a bad track record. We could say that Israel has bad spiritual credit. Every opportunity that they've had to bless God, they've rebelled and been terrible. Surely God knows that in four chapters, David is going to sin, and he's going to sin really big. It was true of the Abrahamic covenant, and it's true of the Davidic covenant. God's covenant with mankind requires mercy and grace, because we 
will fail. We will deserve punishment. We will not ever deserve God's abundant, eternal blessings of goodness in our lives. You with me? But for the glory of God's covenant, God will extend his mercy where he sees fit and he will give grace and he will show himself to be glorious. He will take what is broken and he'll redeem it to be glorious. God takes a person, even a person deserving of destruction, and he mercifully blesses and exalts that person. God's covenant with David that results in our eternal Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is demonstration of God's glorious mercy and grace. Now, God shows us his mercy and grace in this covenant. But there's a story that illustrates God's mercy and grace working through David. So number two, the king's table. Do you guys remember? Sorry, I'm a little bit distracted. Long time ago at the mall, there was a place called the king's table. Do you remember that? Yeah. Make you hungry, huh? <clears throat> Just, I don't, sorry, I got distracted. I should have eaten some breakfast. The king's table. So you imagine this huge dining hall. He already told us he lives in this fancy, beautiful cedar house. Big dining hall with a gigantic table that probably seats 30 people. Big, heavy wood, manly dining room table. This is King David. He killed a giant, dude. Over the end of the table hangs the head of a deer or of something that he mounted. <clears throat> Where'd your mind go? Those are weirdos. <clears throat> yeah, imagine that. How cool. There's a big spear hanging on one side and a sword hanging on the other side. Goliath is hanging the king's table, it's this, it's this palatial dining hall. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's, the, it's that. It's cedar. So if you know anything about acoustics, the, the reason, the reason, if you know anything about acoustics, the reason Thomas's guitar is made out of wood is because wood resonates sound, right? So you sit at the end of, David can sit at one end of his, of his 50 foot long dining room table and say, Welcome to dinner. And they can hear him on the other end. You probably remember that the prophet Samuel, I'm shifting gears, by the way. I'm actually back to my notes. That's good. You remember the prophet Samuel anointed David to be king before Saul had died. And even Samuel said, God, this is not wise. And God said, that's okay, do it anyway. And Saul became very jealous of David. So I'm, I'm going to read some text that's passed now to set up where I want to get you here in a few minutes, okay? And I'm looking at the time. We got to hurry. Y'all have to stop dinking around, okay? Y'all are distracted this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After David had finished talking with Saul, this is after he just killed Goliath, Okay. So after David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. 
From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. Good king. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. There are people who will take this text and do terrible things with it. I'm telling you, these two men loved each other and it was not a sexual love, okay? You with me? We have gotten so homophobic that now we can't even have men love each other without it being weird. So we have to qualify. Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. This is not a romantic love. Verse 4. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. He Basically, Jonathan says, I give myself to you. All that I am, I give to you. I'm here for you. I'm behind you 100%. David has just killed Goliath. That's reason enough for Saul to feel a little challenged, right? But now Jonathan, his son, the next in line for the throne after Saul, is declaring his friendship, his loyalty to David. We don't know if Saul knows that David uh, has been anointed to be the king to replace Saul yet or not. We just don't know. But Saul wisely, the scripture says, keeps David close. Doesn't let him go home. Verse 5. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. Pretty cool. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. So the people liked David as well. When the victories, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine uh, Goliath, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. The king is coming. Let's go see the king. They sang and danced with joy, uh, for joy, with tambourines and cymbals. It was loud. They were having a full-on worship service. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands. There's no tune to this, by the way. They just kind of leave you out there hanging. And David, his what? Ten thousands. Oh, I was a staff member for a while, and I know you're allowed to have a certain amount of success, but not too much. (laughs) Right, Thomas? (laughs) I'm kidding. I am hyper aware of that because I'm like, I want our staff to be as successful as God can possibly make them. So go for it. But... I mean, all of us are men, and if you're the one in the position of authority, you don't want somebody else coming along and outdoing you. Verse 8, what happened is uh, I had preached, pastor was gone, I had preached, he came back, and people said, oh, Brent did a great job, and he got his feelings hurt. So after that, I did a poor job of preaching, and then I got a raise, and that is not a way to lead a church. Okay, anyway. I'm making up parts of that story so that you don't repeat any of it, okay? (laughs) Verse 8. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands. It just irritates me. Next, uh, they'll be making him their king. What David, I mean, what Saul doesn't already know. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul. And he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day. But Saul had a spear in his hand. 
and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Buddy, you throw a spear at me one time, I'm gone. David's like, dude, what are you doing? I'm not staying around for you to calm down. I'm gone. I'm taking my harp. I'm going. <clears throat> Saul, Saul was then afraid of David because Saul was a warrior as well. He's standing probably less than from me to the wall. He can kill a man with a spear that close. Twice he missed. Now Saul's saying, hmm. Saul was then afraid of David for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. Scary place to be. Verse 13, finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men. Here's a thousand men, go away. <clears throat> and David faithfully led his troops into battle. Verse 14, David continued to succeed in everything he did for the Lord was with him. Now what happens, and I'm going to skip through a whole bunch of texts, but you got to get the, the picture here. Saul spends the rest of his life trying to kill David. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, Saul urged all of his servants, even Jonathan, to assassinate David. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, 19, Saul sent troops to David's house, even where uh, Saul's daughter actually lived as well. Sent them there to kill David, but David escaped. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, Saul has, listen carefully, 3,000 of the most elite Israelite troops searching for David, the shepherd. He's probably still got his sling in his pocket. He may still have four of those stones in his other pocket. <clears throat> He's just out of the 3,000 elite assassins, Israelite ninjas looking for David. Kill him. That's the truth. <laughs> Saul's out here with his men. Saul says, hey guys, pass me the TP. There's a cave up there. That's code. There's a cave. So Saul goes up to the cave to do his business, to use the, to use the bathroom. What he didn't know is that David and his men are further back in the cave, hiding in the dark. David sneaks up. This is why you like David. Gotta like David. I mean, he's going to apologize, which is kind of wimpy, but he sneaks up in the dark while Saul is doing his business, and he cuts off a piece of his robe. <laughs> And then when David gets back down the hill, when Saul gets down the hill, David goes, hey, I'm sorry. I, that wasn't fair. You're the king. I shouldn't be messing with, with the king. Even if you are out here with 3,000 elite soldiers to kill me, I'm sorry that I cut your robe. King Saul treats David terrible. That's why I went through all of that. You've got to get the context of what's happening. He lies about David. He tries to turn everyone against David. He tries over and over to kill David or to get David killed. David remains resolute. He will not touch the man that God has appointed as king over Israel. As long as Saul, as God allows Saul to live, David will honor God's choice. Later on in a battle with the Philistines, Saul gets cornered. He falls on his sword to avoid being captured. He dies 
Fast forwarding in the story, Israel recognizes David as king. And now that gets us to where I wanted to start. Now we're going to start. Second Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Now, uh, David has become king. He is there. He's in his palace. One day, David asked, is anyone in Saul's? Everyone say Saul's. Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? That's important. Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. He could have said, is there any of Jonathan's descendants still alive? Because Jonathan and I were friends. I loved him. He was a good man. He doesn't. He says, is there anyone in Saul's family still alive? Verse 2, he summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's son is still alive. He is crippled in both of his feet. Where is he? The king asked. He's in low Debar, Ziba told him, at the home of Maker, son of Amaliel. So David sent him, sent for him and brought him from Maker's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. Got that in your head? Now here's a little, here's context to the context. Previously, 2 Samuel chapter 4, Saul's son Jonathan had had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. So when Saul and, and Jonathan die, that's when this story takes place. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and ran. She fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped Mephibosheth and he became crippled. When he came to David, when Mephibosheth came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Here's the deal. Oh, no, stick to your notes, Brent. You just have to wait till I get there. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Picture this. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property, all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will eat here with me at the king's table. Are are you okay? Now, the custom was, as a king, you come in, and if you take over a people group, you kill all of the descendants of the king, because you don't want those descendants coming along and saying, I have a birthright to the throne. So whenever the king calls you, and you've been allowed to live for how many every years, hiding under the radar, because David didn't know where Mephibosheth was, so Mephibosheth is staying down low. He doesn't want anybody to know where he's at because he doesn't want the king saying, you're a descendant of of Saul. I must kill you. So whenever he's called in, Mephibosheth comes in with his head down low with deep respect because he's planning on being beheaded right now. Because that is what is just. 
Instead, man, David says, I'm going to give you your grandpa's kingdom. How's that? And I want you to sit at my table. I want you here with me. Verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? I don't know that there is any other uh, euphemism for, for being so low as a dead dog for a Jew. You with me? Dogs are unclean animals. Death is unclean. He's saying, I am unclean, unclean, absolutely unworthy of being here in your palace. Then the king summoned Saul's servant, Ziba, and said, I have given your master's grandson, talking about Mephibosheth, everything that belonged to Saul. Remember, Ziba was a servant of Saul and his family. Verse 10, you and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. Ziba, you have Ziba, you have a new master. It's going to be Mephibosheth. He is crippled. We can all see that. We don't need to draw attention to it. Ziba, you and your family is going to farm his land, uh, make produce, make him great. You with me? But Mephibosheth, you're, um, I don't I have no idea where I'm at. So I'm going to start in verse 10 again. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so they're going to be fine. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, because he thought he was going to lose his job too. Yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant and I will do all you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. He's the son of David's worst enemy. Verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young uh, son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And and Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. I got to go fast because we got to get to the end here. That's all the text. David had justifiable reason to resent Saul and by association resent all of Saul's family, all of his descendants, including all of Saul's children and grandchildren. In fact, he had every reason to kill all of Saul's descendants, right? But King David sought to show kindness where kindness was not expected. David sought to show kindness, to give mercy, to give grace where it was not expected. Jesus implemented a new covenant between us and God. A covenant contingent upon mercy and upon the mercy and the grace of God, not me. Because just like Mephibosheth, you and I, we don't deserve any of this. This grand hall where there's this grand dining room table. I have a feeling Mephibosheth showed up late from time to time. He didn't have two good legs. So David, the king of Israel, God's man, the most famous king in all of the earth, sits waiting for Mephibosheth. He's coming down the hall on a stone floor. You probably hear the crutch hit the ground and the sliding of a body. 
of legs that don't work. Then you hear the hit of a crutch and the sliding of a body, and we'll wait. We'll wait for Mephibosheth, because David will offer him all of the mercy and the grace of his very own son. Does Mephibosheth deserve it? No, not at all. We do nothing to deserve it. In fact, our sin kept us away from God's salvation. But because of God's glorious mercy and grace, here we sit at the table of the eternal king. Our seat at the table has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. In an unjust world that is seeking justice, I probably read too much news this week. In an unjust world that is seeking justice outside of the just God, canceling those who have been offensive in some way, let it be followers of the sovereign Lord who say, who is left that I can show God's kindness to? Are you following? The world says, you did something that was offensive to me, so I don't want you anywhere. I don't want you to exist, real honestly. And the mercy of God in the believer says, what can I do to show kindness to my vilest enemy? Instead of seeking justice, instead of seeking our perspective of righteousness, what if those filled with the light of Christ Jesus took a beat and prayed to the living God, Lord, who can I show your kindness to today? Who can I show your mercy to? Who can I give your grace to? Someone who doesn't deserve it just like me. Because you and I are really good at showing God's grace and mercy to the people we like, right? Oh, don't look around, bunch of sinners. Even sinners do that. The evidence of the living God being in us is like David whenever we say, God, you have given me more than I have ever could deserve. You've blessed, you've dumped the bank on me. Ah, you have been so good to me. I am so eternally blessed. Is there anyone? Show me who I can give your kindness to, your mercy. You and I are redeemed by a covenant dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God, not on you. Let God's glorious mercy and grace shine through us in all of our attitudes and our actions. If we will make it a daily prayer, Lord, show me throughout my day today who I can show your mercy to, who I can show your kindness to, who I can show your grace to, you'll start seeing opportunities to give, maybe even give bigger than what you have to give. That's how God works. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we are so humbled by your glory. We are humbled that, like Mephibosheth, we come, we hide from you because we're broken. We don't want your judgment on us. We don't want you to see our sin. So we hide far away from you. And, and in the meantime, we're trying to be as good of a person as we possibly can and we fail miserably and 
Then we read the story of Mephibosheth, and Lord, we see your grace reaching out to the lost. We see you calling our name from your throne to redeem us, to bring us into your kingdom, to adopt us into your family, to treat us like your very own son. Father, we're humbled. We want with all that we are to live a life that glorifies you. And we even know in that it's dependent upon your Holy Spirit present in our lives. Just like you were with David, we need you with us so that we can be the objects of your glory. Father, this morning I ask that that your Holy Spirit will every morning remind us this week that we should ask you to show us who we can show mercy and grace to. Father, empower us with your Holy Spirit to give more than we have, to bless more than we are blessed, to just give, give to those who do not deserve it so that you are glorified. Father, work in our hearts so that people are drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the Desert Heights Church Weekly Message. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on Main Street in Farmington, New Mexico. If you'd like more information, please visit our website at desertheightschurch.com.